My name is Dr. Matt Luckett, and welcome to the Horse Thief Historian Podcast, where we talk about all things horse stealing related and other stuff because that's sort of a limited topic. This series is part of my 17B lecture course, United States History from 1865. So uh, I've been talking for like 15 minutes now and I completely forget to hit record. Um, I haven't hit any, or I haven't mentioned any of the keywords yet. Uh, so uh, welcome if you're listening to this. Uh, get, just completely forgot to hit record. Uh, this is the Manifest uh, Destinies lecture. And um, basically what I'm talking about today and uh, the people who, who are watching this will kind of know and I'll try to, I was already going on tangents and stuff. So um, this, is, this, I, this is near and dear to my heart. So I talk a lot about it. Um, one of the things that, that I want to talk about, one of the reasons why I'm sort of talking about Western settlement and imperialism together is because imperialism in a lot of ways is a continuation of Western settlement. One of the things I was talking about earlier is that law enforcement uh, came before vigilante justice in the West in most cases. Uh, in fact, many of the big vigilante movements, like for instance, the one in Montana, uh, where like some 50, 55 people, I think were, were lynched, um, came because the sheriff there was actually uh, in bed with a bunch of horse thieves. Uh, and so you have sort of similar situations play out. There's one in Nebraska, actually, one sheriff was uh, actually hanged for associating with horse thieves. Uh, so, well, I was talking about, you know, because one of the things we're talking about now as a society is to fund the police. That's one of the really big, you know, hashtags right now, one of the big debates. And so uh, Western settlement is actually a really great place to study the advent of law enforcement. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed in my own research is that uh, there's not a lot of confidence in law enforcement in the late 19th century, which is one of the reasons why you have vigilantism. And it's one of the reasons why you have, uh, you know, so many hangings uh, relative to, you know, the rest of the country. That's not the South anyway. Uh, so anyway, I was, I was kind of starting to go off on a tangent about that. So, uh, but what I was trying to do, though, is sort of talk about uh, law enforcement as a separate component of settling the West. One of the things that, bring it back on track, um, that's important about understanding the settlement of the West is something I kind of alluded to yesterday, which is that, um, as all these people go west, they have to start new communities, right? They have to build roads, they have to build schools, they have to form governments, they have to do all these different things that create a community. Um, and that community building exercise is, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a few minutes, but um, Frederick Jackson Turner believed that was sort of like a fundamentally American enterprise. But in order to settle the west, you first have to depopulate it. Right, because the West is already filled with um, indigenous nations and tribal nations and things like that that, that stand in the way of, of you know taking all this land. I mean, there are a number of really big conflicts in this regard, right? The Modoc War here in California, um, and in certainly the, in the Plains Indian Wars, right? The uh, the United States cavalry going up against the uh, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho. Uh, from Kansas and Nebraska all the way up to Montana. 
so the sort of the culmination of this, uh, it, there's a lot of stuff I'm skipping over. So I apologize. Uh, it's in my book. Read it. Um, but as, there are a lot of great books on this. Um, <clears throat> um, Little Bighorn is, uh, it, it happens just a couple weeks before the American uh, Centennial Celebration in 1876. Um, where Crazy Horse and about 4,000 assorted, mostly Lakota, but some Cheyenne and some Arapaho uh, warriors uh, surround and then obliterate uh, an entire cavalry, cavalry regiment. Um, and so this is obviously pretty, pretty crazy thing, right? It's over 200 Americans, American troops are killed, including Custer. Uh, this enrages the United States. Up until this point in time, the Plains Indian Wars were very much in the back of their minds. There wasn't a lot of time or money, uh, you know, or attention spent on them. But Little Bighorn changes that dynamic. Um, and so this is like a 9-11 event uh, in the history of Western settlement. Suddenly people are very conscious of what's happening. Uh, and so as a result of that, Congress then um, passes a bill, they raise a bunch of money, they send a bunch of troops out. Within a year, Crazy Horse surrenders and is subsequently killed at Camp Robinson, Nebraska. Uh, and then most of the other uh, other leaders, with the exception of like Sitting Bull, who escapes to Canada for a, a period of time, uh, they surrender. And so Little Bighorn is sort of a catalyzing event. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, there, there's there's a lot to talk about its legacy, um, but I think with respect to the quiz, the most important thing to understand is that it uh, represents sort of the the beginning of the end of organized uh, wide scale Indian resistance to white settlement. Uh, Little Bighorn's the beginning of the end, right? Little Bighorn is when the United States Army starts to devote all these new resources. Uh, to fighting the Plains Indian Wars and planning these, uh, fighting in these campaigns. Excuse me. Uh, so that's really sort of the, the salient point from there. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of all the other stuff that's happening. Uh, so after that, after Little Bighorn, uh, this speeds up the process, which had already begun earlier, of sending American Indians uh, to, um, to reservations. Uh, so, like, for instance, the, the Lakota, who end up in Pine Ridge and Rosebud, which are both in uh, Dakota territory. And, um, excuse me, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so, these big reservations are meant to sort of hem them in, but they're also meant to teach uh, farming, supposedly, right? The whole idea was to make American Indians self-sufficient, um, which they already were, right? But, um, sort of like the white person's idea of self-sufficient, which is growing agriculture, raising livestock, that sort of thing. Uh, because up until that point, they're also the, the ones that have been taken out of the field and, and put into reservations uh, were, you know, their subsistence was taken away. So at that point, they're essentially dependent on annuities, which were annual payouts by the United States government that funded their, their food and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, so in any case, even though they have these reservations, um, the United States government starts to chip away at those because the same process that led to the settlement of the West, the same process really that led to the Plains Indian Wars and to um, the, the um, eviction 
of American Indian peoples from their own land to reservations. And the violation of treaties that they signed, that the United States government signed with these sovereign tribal nations. That same process of land acquisition in a short period of time starts to also now target those reservations themselves. In 1887, uh, I think I might have already mentioned this, the United States government passes the Dawes Act, which actually divides these reservations into individual allotments. So it essentially extends homesteading into Indian reservations. It gives every Indian family, uh, every, I should say every Indian family head of household, um, you know, some land. But all that other land uh, is then saleable um, by the United States. United States government. So this further, um, you know, dispossesses the American Indians of their own land. Uh, so that process of land acquisition, needing more land, is one of the really big, important main reasons for uh, this, this constant conflict with these indigenous inhabitants of the West. Um, really, it's two competing visions of the land, and the white uh, American, Eurocentric, American-centric sort of view of that land as um, a place to grow crops and sort of an extension of Iowa and Illinois and Indiana and places like that, that vision of that land wins out. But there's a problem. And again, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. I apologize. It's, it's hard to talk about this in like 20 minutes. Um, one of the big problems with the West is something that I think we're all kind of familiar with here, which is that it's very dry, right? Outside of the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, even parts of California, uh, you get less than 20 inches of rainfall per year. It's called the 20-inch isolate, right? So when you get under 20 inches of rainfall a year, you can no longer rely on rainfall for uh, agriculture, for commercial agriculture without irrigation or dry farming. So what this essentially means is that you either need water infrastructure uh, to build farms out in the West, which is one of the reasons why we have so much agribusiness here in California, because you need to have the concentration um, of water resources and the firms that are best able to put together um, the sort of like lobbying power that they need to get those resources are large firms. So in the West, you start to get agribusiness as opposed to these little, you know, mom and pop farms that, you know, you find all throughout the East. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing that it does is it also sections off a huge part of the American landscape as essentially, um, you know, not arable. You can't really grow stuff there, right? Like go to the Mojave Desert and start a farm. You know, it's going to be very difficult. Um, go to the, the middle of Nevada, like not the ranges, but like just the, the bottom land, the desert floor. That's going to be hard. We're talking about huge swaths of the country um, that are essentially exempt from agriculture. So that's a problem. As Americans move west, they hit this, this wall, right? Not like a Trump wall, uh, not a geographic wall like the Rockies, but rather like this climatological wall. Um, you can't go into Colorado, Wyoming, um, and have the same kinds of farms that you did back east. So what this means is that that whole process of settling the West and moving forward and taking the, the same sort of model of acquiring land, starting a farm, plowing your field, growing crops, raising a family, then they grow up, then they move West, and then they start farms, 
which Americans have had access to the system ever since 1607 with Jamestown, that process is drawing to a close. Even though they've evicted the American Indians from their land, even though they've won the Indian Wars, ironically enough, there's still not enough land. The, the land that is left is not Illinois land, right? It's, it's like desert land, it's Nevada, basically. So where does that leave us? By 1890, what we start to see, I had a map, oh, here it is, perfect. Yeah, if you look at this map, uh, this map does a really good job of showing you uh, how America grows during this, the, the, the post-war period. Uh, so red areas represent places that are settled by 1860, okay? So basically by the beginning of the Civil War. By 1870, you get all these orange sections. By 1880, you get the yellow sections. By 1890, you get the green sections. So they're really chipping away at the margins here. Most of these green areas, these are primarily arid regions. They don't get a lot of water. They don't get a lot of rainfall. Same thing over here, same thing over here. All the good spots are taken, right? The red spots, those are the good places. Those are the places that uh, lend themselves most readily to agriculture. And so, you know, the green spaces and the yellow spaces, they need some help and they need some assistance. So what does all this mean, basically? Um, let me go back down here. Hey, I, Dr. Luckett. Um, at this point, were there still bison left on the plains, or was that pretty much over with by now? Pretty much over with. Um, by 1872, there were only 3,000 bison left. So agriculture was kind of the only option as far as food sources anyway, right, for a lot of the, right. like Lakota and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, in the early 19th century, there were tens of millions of bison in the plains, but they were hunted for sport. Uh, horses and livestock competed for grass. Uh, and so that was just absolutely unsustainable. And actually, the United States Army killed a lot of them, too, uh, because they, they knew that they were the food source for their enemy. So as a result of that, you know, they, they start to die off very rapidly. So by the 1870s, they're virtually extinct. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's basically gone. Um, one of the things to talk about 17A is the Great Plains as like this big biofuel reserve because the, the grasses sort of represent its own sort of fuel, right? That's fuel for horses, fuel for bison, fuel for cows, things like that. Um, that's why cattle ranching is such a big thing. That's why uh, horse stealing is such a hard crime because the horse economy is, is absolutely critical to the, the plains. Um, and it's why, you know, the, the Comanche and the Lakota were able to grow so fast because they were able to, um, you know, get a leg up on their competition in terms of seizing uh, and hunting bison. Um, but yeah, with the overhunting of bison, uh, that's obviously not a factor anymore by 1880. Excuse me. Okay. Sorry, I have like, I'm congested right now. Um, so by 1890, 1890 is a crazy year. Uh, 1890, the United States Census Bureau declares uh, that the United States frontier is closed. There's no more frontier. It's gone. People hear this news and they flip out, right? 
Because since 1607, we've always had a frontier to settle. But it's gone, right? There's, there's nothing there left. So Americans are sort of facing this existential crisis, right? Look, um, the other thing that happens in 1890 is the battle, the massacre at Wounded Knee, uh, which represents the end of active American Indian uh, resistance. And really, it also represents the beginning um, of, uh, you know, re-education of the Lakota and the Cheyenne and things like that, and, and, and other peoples on reservations. Uh, and a more uh, energetic effort by the United States government to uh, culturally remove them from their own uh, peoples, their own societies, and, and sort of integrate them more forcibly into white society. So the massacre of Wounded Knee sort of represents another um, watershed moment. Uh, the end of active American Indian resistance and uh, the beginning of even greater attempts at, you know, I would call it cultural genocide, you know, the dismantling of American Indian uh, reservation cultures by taking children and sending them to boarding schools, for instance. Uh, in the 1950s, this was called relocation, uh, taking Cherokee kids, Lakota kids, Cheyenne kids, uh, and then sending them to other parts of the country to live in cities. So you're essentially removing them from their, um, not just from their families, but from their communities and from their, their cultures. So that process of dismantling American Indian cultures, it doesn't start with the massacre at Wounded Knee, but it really picks up the pace after that. Um, because the, the United States government, even though this effectively represents the end of American Indian resistance, um, you know, this also sort of, um, induces the American government to double down uh, on its efforts to really, you know, integrate American Indians back into, into, not back into, but into American society. Does that make sense? Okay, so I, I, I didn't want to forget that. Um, so let's talk about the frontier thesis. So the frontier thesis comes um, sort of in tandem with this, this announcement. I've already mentioned it, right? Frederick, Frederick Jackson Turner uh, wrote the significance of the American frontier in history. And his, he basically postulated that it's this process of, and I'm definitely paraphrasing here, right? It's this process of community building in the West that makes disparate people from across the country, from Europe, from wherever. It makes them into Americans. This common bond that they forge uh, as they're settling the West and building these communities makes them American. Now there's a lot of holes. He doesn't talk about American Indians hardly at all, barely talks about women. Um, there's a lot of things he doesn't really address. There is over a century of scholarship that is just absolutely bashing the frontier thesis. So we don't need to kind of go down that, that rabbit hole, but it should suffice to say, though, that people found a lot of comfort in the frontier thesis. The frontier thesis uh, validated to Americans um, the idea that the frontier had meaning, uh, that even though the frontier was gone, it was a positive, beneficial experience for Americans. One other way they did this was by going to the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Um, Buffalo Bill Cody, William Cody, uh, was a showman. He was an Indian scout for a long period of time. Uh, actually cut his teeth in Nebraska. Um, 1872, he famously led this uh, bison hunt 
uh, in southwest Nebraska with uh, an archduke from Russia and uh, several Lakota chiefs and then also uh, several like prominent generals and stuff like that. Uh, so he was pretty well known in the region. And then by 1880, he's he has this huge um, by, you know, Buffalo Bill show, and he's going across the West and then the East Coast, and then eventually takes it to London uh, and to Europe, uh, traveling the world, you know, with sort of his traveling troop. And so people would go to the, the Wild West, and that's why we call this the Wild West, you know, it kind of comes from the Buffalo Bill show. And they would watch in front of them, you know, these gunfighters shoot it out and, you know, cavalrymen chasing Indians and, you know, Annie Oakley toured with him for a time. So all this other stuff, right? And um, it's sort of like ingrained in the American imagination, this frontier myth. So Americans are thinking a lot about the frontier in the 1890s, even though it's essentially uh, over, at least as far as farming is concerned, and as far as the Census Bureau is concerned, it never really leaves their frame of mind. And Americans very quickly start to wax nostalgic um, about the frontier and about where it went. And so that kind of leads to the second part of this lecture, uh, which is imperialism, right? Uh, one of the reasons why imperialism is such a weird topic uh, when we think about it, like um, you guys remember imperialism from high school, right? Did you guys talk about this at all in your high school classes? So it's it's sort of a weird thing, right? Because generally when we think about imperialism, we think about Europe. Uh, and we think about all the, 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 the alliances and the colonization of Africa and all this other stuff. And really ultimately the circumstances that lead to World War I. So in a lot of ways, you know, American imperialism is either an aberration, it's something that America did it for a period of time, like the Macarena, you know, uh, or disco. You know, it's something we're into for a little bit and then like, well, that's, how do we ever do that? That was dumb. Um, or you can kind of view it as America flexing its muscles a little bit and uh, regaining, or I should say, I keep saying re, um, America finding its place in the world and establishing itself as a world power. Uh, or you can even say that American imperialism is just a slightly more visible um, phase of American economic imperialism, uh, which arguably goes much, much, much earlier, right? Like when Matthew Perry, not the friend, you know, but the Commodore, um, lands in Japan uh, and then uh, forces the uh, the the Japanese uh, the um, the shogunate there to uh, give America a um, a, a preferential uh, trading status treaty. Uh, so in any case, that's um, it, it's sort of a weird thing to talk about um, because it's sort of alien to to the American uh, uh, idea that you know we we fight for truth and justice and democracy and self determination. Um, but we were visibly imperialist for a time, right? And I think a lot of the reason why we were really kind of comes from the fact that uh, our frontier was essentially gone. And there's a lot of, uh, there's actually a term right now that's, that's in vogue in Western history. It's called settler colonialism, which is the idea that settler colonialism 
you know, uh, Western migrants are, are essentially colonists uh, and they colonize the West, right? They're, they're not just settlers, but they're colonists. They're bringing this nation over. They're extending their nation into these new areas. Um, so if you look at American imperialism as sort of a continuation of that, of not just settling the West, but colonizing it effectively, building roads, building towns, building communities, um, you know, giving things English names, uh, that process itself uh, is sort of continued along later on with imperialism. Um, so the frontier thesis is important with that regard. It, it made Americans value that, and it made Americans not just nostalgic for, for sort of the uh, frontier past, but more desirous of areas across the sea. There are also a couple more practical reasons for that. One reason for that goes along with what we'll be talking about the next lecture, which is the Gilded Age. Uh, there's a lot of laborers in America. There's plenty of work uh, for, for new immigrants. In fact, you know, America's bringing in uh, 10 million immigrants a year uh, from Poland, from Italy, from uh, Russia, uh, places like that to work in these, these menial factory jobs. But there's still a lot of worry that those people who weren't happy with working in a factory floor, working in a meatpacking plant, whatever, these are the rabble-rousers. These are the people who would go off and start unions, right, and become anarchists and, you know, re-Karl Marx and crazy things like that. So we need to have something for them to do. And so imperial, imperialism as a continuation of the frontier is a way to get rid of those people. If you have people that are going to be unhappy uh, working in a factory, living in Boston or New York and Philadelphia, well, they can't go west anymore, like Horace Greeley famously quipped in the 1850s, but you can go to Hawaii or the Philippines or someplace like that uh, and start a new life, right? Um, and that's also sort of important for uh, social mobility and economic mobility, right? Um, the Scots helped the English colonize because they, they couldn't get plum jobs in England. Uh, so they went to places like India in order to move up uh, the latter, um, you know, sort of things like that. And so having sort of imperialist possessions will do the same thing for America. If you're a social climber, an economic climber, but you come from a poor family, from an immigrant family, this is something that you can do uh, and elevate yourself. Uh, so American imperialism uh, really be, I mean, like I said, you can make a, a much earlier argument for this. You can say the Monroe Doctrine uh, was sort of the beginning of this. You can say the 1854 um, expedition to Japan. Um, I'll just, for arbitrary sake, say 1867, when the United States bought Alaska, uh, Seward's icebox. Uh, and so Americans didn't really know what to think of this. They just lost three quarters of a million uh, people fighting the Civil War. Like, what the hell is Alaska, you know? Um, but nonetheless, this sort of represents America looking beyond its, its contiguous borders uh, to other places. Of course, Hawaii is, is a much more sort of significant um, element of that. Uh, I think it's actually my world history class, but I've noticed in the, in the Introduce Yourselves, so, 
I have at least two students who are going to the University of Hawaii next year, which is really great um, and, and pretty fantastic. But of course, Hawaii wasn't always uh, an American possession. In fact, it was a kingdom. Uh, Queen Lulu Kalani uh, was the sovereign ruler of Hawaii uh, until I want to say 1896 or 1898. I need to get my notes out in front of me. Uh, when after several years of, uh, was the first thing that happens is that uh, American pineapple interests there, like the Dole family, um, take control of the, of the country and declare a republic. So they deposed Queen Lily Kalani and uh, lock her in a room for four years. And then after several years, they then petitioned Congress uh, for annexation uh, for this republic to become a state, a little bit like, all right, sorry, to become part of the United States. So a little bit like Texas, um, but there's no treaty involved or, or anything like that. So Congress passes a joint resolution uh, and sort of formally annexes Hawaii in, in that regard. Um, so it wasn't exactly legitimate. There's no plebiscite or anything like that that gave, um, you know, so the Hawaiians never technically agreed to it. It was just the government saying like, let's, let's do this. So there's a lot of, um, questionable legalities there with respect to the acquisition of Hawaii. Um, you know, but the, the Hawaii or the Sandwich Islands, as they were formerly known, uh, wasn't just a big pineapple producer, right? But it was also an important um, uh, place to stop on the way to, on, on the way to Asia. So uh, an important base uh, for the Navy, as Pearl Harbor will later show. Uh, so Hawaii is, is sort of like the next step in that, in that process. The problem, though, is Alaska and Hawaii, as you know, the, these are certainly extensions of American sovereignty um, at the expense of, at least in Hawaii's case, uh, the, the native nation there. Um, but the problem was that, at least with respect to other countries that were already taking over massive swaths of colonies elsewhere, the United States was very late to the game. Uh, so they weren't part of the uh, Conference of Berlin, which in 1884 and 1885 uh, divvied up the entire continent of Africa and doled it out to different countries there. Uh, you might have seen some news reports lately about King Leopold II uh, of Belgium, and his uh, statue was taken down over in Belgium. The reason for that, uh, if you ever read uh, Adam Hochschild's uh, King Leopold's Ghost, uh, is that King Leopold... Uh, subsequently uh, received control uh, of the Congo uh, for Belgium, uh, which none of the other European powers wanted because it was so inaccessible. But Belgium managed to turn it into a major uh, rubber producing colony, but they only did so through absolutely brutal fiendish violence against the native population. Um, so that was a horrific and bloody and brutal legacy uh, that Leopold II left behind. Uh, so in any case, even Belgium has this, you know, collection of colonies by uh, 1898. America, however, does not. Neither, incidentally, does Japan. The United States and Japan are both sort of newcomers to the world scene. They're both non-European, growing, um, expansionist-minded powers that you know, weren't privy to these European conversations. So right about the same time, the United States and Japan are both kind of looking to throw their weight around a little bit. So 
one of the easiest ways to like if, if you're new on a playground or something like that um you know one of the easiest ways to get respect is to go find the find the bullies right but don't attack the strongest bully find the weakest bully and then kick his butt right and if you attack the weakest bully and kick his butt well guess what you know now you have a little more respect so you gotta choose the right person right um i'm not saying do this i'm just i'm trying to i'm searching for a metaphor um but that's kind of what the united states does right they look at spain and spain is this old gray withering away empire you know obviously the spanish empire uh it's is very old indeed, right? I mean, the Spanish Empire is originally what uh, tried to colonize uh, America. It's certainly what colonized Mexico and, and vast swaths of Mesoamerica. But by the late 19th century, they're definitely um, much, much, much weaker than they were. They lost most of their uh, Latin American possessions. Uh, they were in constant economic crisis. Uh, so they were... They, they they're a little bit like the Ottoman Empire, right? They they weren't um, very well positioned to sort of hold on to to what they still had. So the United States looks after them and thinks, well, you know, we can take them on pretty easy. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Uh, Eighteen ninety eight, uh, the United States, uh, the Yellow Press, right? Yellow journalism, uh, the muckraking press, um, which is part of the the pot, the progressive era. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about them next week. Um, but William Randolph Hearst, who owns a, a bunch of newspapers in America, uh, sort of starts his own private newspaper war against the Spanish Empire over Cuba. Cuba, this major, major sugar producer, and America wants to get preferential uh, treatment from the Cubans. But the problem is all the sugar is being packaged and, and delivered to Spain for then resale here. Right? So America wants direct access to all that sugar production. Um, among other things, you know, there's a lot of Americans that actually empathize with the growing uh, independence movement in Cuba. And a lot of Americans have had, sort of had their eyes on Cuba for a while. A lot of Confederates uh, had their eyes on Cuba for a possible future U.S. state. So in any case, right, there's a lot of Americans desirous of, of having Cuba. So in any case, in 1898, the USS Maine is in Havana Harbor, and it blows up. William Randolph Hearst immediately accuses uh, the Spanish of doing this, right? Uh, this is why it's really, really important uh, to be critical of the press, and certainly to be critical of um, press empires that have a political agenda. Hmm. Um, thinking of certain networks. Um, really just thinking like two. Uh, but in any case, they have a, an agenda and an ax to grind. So he's putting this out there and telling all of his millions of readers, uh, it was Spain that did this. Spain bombed the USS Maine without a, a shred of evidence. Um, in fact, later investigations will show that the USS Maine uh, blew up because of a boiler. Uh, a steam boiler, those blew up all the time. Um, this is a notorious, unreliable, notoriously unreliable technology until the early 20th century. Uh, so these things periodically happen. In any case, the United States whips into a frenzy. Uh, President uh, William McKinley asks for and receives a declaration of war against the Spanish Empire. So the Spanish-American War doesn't last that long. Um, 
it just I, I actually have a question about this in the quiz. Um, so uh, look it up. I, I don't remember the, the exact time. It's it only lasts a few months. Um, and there's only just a few weeks of active fighting between the two powers. Uh, the uh, United States invades Cuba. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, you know, storm up San Juan Hill. Uh, there's a really big naval engagement off the Philippines. The United States wrecks the Spanish Navy with whatever's left of it. Uh, so in any case, the, the thing that you need to know about the Spanish-American War, which is a Basically, the Spanish-American War is the Gulf War of the 19th century, right? It's quick. It, you know, a, a few, like 300 Americans die, but for the most part, it's just super fast. It's hard-hitting. It's, it's over before people know it. Um, Spain sues for peace, uh, and Spain subsequently signs over most of its empire to the United States, which gets Guam, the Philippines, uh, the Marinara Islands, uh, and uh, Puerto Rico. Now, Cuba doesn't go directly to the United States. Cuba receives conditional independence uh, with United States oversight. So essentially, it becomes, I don't want to say like a puppet state, but that's kind of what Cuba is. Um, the United States government directly intercedes in the affairs of the Cubans, uh, in part because it wants that preferential sugar um, trade from Cuba. Uh, one of the after effects of this war is, uh, if we're going to follow this comparison, uh, if the Spanish-American War was like the Gulf War, then the Philippine-American insurgency was a lot more like the more recent war in, in Iraq. Um, it was very long. The United States prevailed in the end, but only after 4,000 Americans had died. Um, this became a festering sore in the newspapers. Uh, as Emilio Aguinaldo, um, who is a uh, fighter for, for Filipino uh, independence, uh, continued to fight against American forces stationed there. So this lasts for several years. Eventually, they, they sue for peace, and the, and the government, the United States government, you know, sort of uh, eradicates most of the resistance. Um, but it definitely leaves a foul taste in Americans' mouths, right? They're supposed to be protectors of independence. They're supposed to be guarantors of liberty and self-determination and things like that. And here, here's America over in the Philippines fighting an independence movement, right, which is decidedly what Americans they thought shouldn't be doing, you know, when we ourselves fought for independence from, from Britain. Uh, so the Filipino-American uh, insurgency uh, was uh, definitely had an effect on America's uh, embrace of isolationism uh, going into the 20th century. Uh, it definitely soured a lot of Americans on the idea of imperialism. And like I said, it was a very bloody war, right? 4,000 Americans died in this. And it was sort of that long festering thing of, you know, you open up the newspaper, here's a few more Americans dead. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how that played out. Meanwhile, in Cuba, um, you don't have that long-running insurgency, but uh, Cuba does become sort of this, um, um, a, a uh, bellwether, uh, trying to think of the word, uh, it becomes an example of what the United States thinks it can accomplish as an imperial power. Uh, I really love this uh, campaign ad in 1900, um, William McKinley and, and Teddy Roosevelt. 
Um, so basically, this is uh, William McKinley running for re-election on the Spanish-American War. Um, and you look at 1896, and you know, basically blaming Grover Cleveland for all of America's problems, runs on the bank, the Panic of 1893, basically blaming the Panic of 1893 in Cleveland. Um, and then look at Spanish rule in Cuba. This is really illuminating, right? Everybody's in a prison. It looks like that scene from the animated Robin Hood, you know, where the rooster and all the foxes and things like that are they're all in jail singing. Uh, 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 what, what's that guy's name? Um, anyway, so that's pretty awful, right? Looks like uh, they're all having a bad time. Uh, but then when you go over here, American rule in Cuba, suddenly everyone's plowing fields, the kids are in school, there's factories, things like that. This is certainly an embellishment on what the Americans were actually doing in Cuba, right? But I think the point there is the, the notion that American imperialism um, is beneficial and that it's actually benefiting the people uh, whom we are taking over. And that has much, 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 much in common uh, with how the Europeans themselves rationalized European colonization and European imperialism. So if there's any way in any facet with which we can really compare American imperialism to European imperialism, it's in that respect, that Americans controlling these other countries um, benefits them. It benefits those people in those other countries. It's what Rudyard Kipling once famously called the white man's burden. Um, we go to these places, we help them out, we give them civilization and roads and schools and factories um, and opera, you know, if, if you ever watched it's Corraldo and all these other great things, right? Um, but reality is a little messier than that. So in any case, we, Americans don't really like that concept of, um, of thinking of our own sort of uh, actions with respect to the Spanish-American War's imperialism, but I think that's probably the strongest point of comparison that you can make, is that in the end, we legitimized it and justified it the exact same way the Europeans did with their admittedly much larger and much more pernicious um, empires in Africa and Asia. But we did the same thing, albeit on a much smaller scale uh, in, in Cuba and in the Philippines. Does anybody have any questions? Was there ever a move to get statehood in like Guam or Puerto Rico or, you know, because obviously that's still something people talk about now. Oh, yeah. I mean, this has been a, uh, well, Puerto Rico's had several elections on this question. Um, I don't know where they stand now. I'd, I'd be curious to, to see what would happen in an election in Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane uh, Maria. Um, I've seen a lot of interesting, so with Guam, Guam's a little different. Because uh, Puerto Rico has three million people, um, Guam, the the northern, you know, Mariana Islands, you know, like that that whole area doesn't have more than I think like fifty thousand people, something like that, which is far below the statehood threshold. One really great proposal I read a few months ago uh, would be to give Puerto Rico, um, actually, so instead of giving Puerto Rico statehood. Uh, you, you keep it as a territory, you keep uh, the Virgin Islands as a territory, but you give the two of them um, sort of like this, this unified territorial status uh, in which they can, uh, which they would have electoral votes, they would have senators, they would have two senators, uh, and they would have appropriate congressional representation in, in the House. So since Puerto Rico has like 
3 million people, they would have, I think math-wise, like five or six representatives, and then the Virgin Islands would maybe get one. But they would get two senators. And then you do the same thing in the Pacific. So that's not large enough to really justify more than one representative, um, but they would get two senators for all the, the Pacific American territories. Uh, and then they would do the same thing for uh, American Indian reservations. So basically American Indian reservations would be um, put together um, and given two senators. Uh, and then you would do the same thing with uh, Washington, D.C. So that's basically eight new senators. Um, and so I, I forget more of the uh, more of the details about that, but uh, John Oliver did a really interesting piece like a year or two ago about uh, the Virgin Islands, Virgin Islands, the uh, in Guam and, and um, American Samoa and some of these other places where you know like they don't even Americans born there don't even have citizenship. So something needs to be done to you know to rectify that. Um, and I wish politics would be uh, uh, a consideration, you know, because as Americans, they deserve every um, bit of representation that, that we have. I mean, after all, America fought a war um, against taxation without representation, but that's essentially what's happening uh, in these territories. Um, so anyway, other questions? Okie doke. Well, let's wrap that up then. And uh, what time is it? 12.05, all right. Well, I guess we better start the other one. Um, so I guess we will, you know what? Um, let's, you wanna just go ahead and, and do that on this one? Gilded Age? Let's, let's do that, let's just make it one. Um, okay. Were you guys gonna do the Gilded Age one? Or I mean, if you wanna leave, you can. Like no one's forcing you guys to be here. Let's just make it one recording because I don't think new people are gonna show up for the other one. Um, I, Cause it's, it's basically the same like seven of you that, that uh, do these. So let's just keep it in this one and uh, um, let's just do that. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna try to make this really quick. I keep saying that. You know what? I'm going to try to make this really slow. Let's do the opposite thing here and uh, make it really slow. All right. Um, maybe that will succeed in making me talk less. Um, let me get the file here and open it up. It's a problem with doing like four or five lectures in a week. So you think, oh, I can do this in 30 minutes, and then an hour later, still have another one. So let's download. Still downloading. Okay, perfect. All right, so um, let's go and share that screen. Be fun with it. Okay. Oh, you know what? Now let's stop share. Let's do share the wrong thing. Uh, 
they have it minimized. Hold on a second. Ah, there we go. Okay. Let me figure this up. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the Gilded Age. Let's do this. I'm going to go through the keywords one by one, uh, define them, give a little bit of context. Uh, that'll shorten my shtick a little bit um, and, and make for a, a hopefully a more efficient lecture. You guys want to do that? Sound good? All right. So that sounds good. All right. Um, so, Homestead Act. Uh, I've already mentioned that. The Homestead Act. Uh, was part of a, a long process of Americans settling west, and the act itself uh, was part of a long process of the federal government recognizing the fact that Americans kept wanting to move west. Um, so the Homestead Act specifically was passed in 1862. Uh, it gave individual uh, Americans or even immigrants that set, pledged to become Americans uh, the ability to take 160 acres of surveyed land and basically get it for almost nothing, next to nothing. The only thing that they would have to do is register for it, so they would file a claim. They would go onto that land, build some sort of lodging, uh, improve the land in some way, cut down some trees, plow a field, that kind of thing. Uh, and then after five years of continuous residence, uh, they would then be able to own that land. So the Homestead Act basically made land for free. And it's one of the reasons why Americans were uh, climbing over the, clamoring over themselves to get a piece of land, you know, after the Civil War, because of the Homestead Act. Uh, so over 800,000 families um, filed for homesteads over the next 70 years. Uh, and the Homestead Act didn't actually officially end until 1935, I believe, um, during, the, during the New Deal. So in any case, the Homestead Act is one of those things that brings America uh, I should say Americans and even immigrants uh, out West and settling the West and sort of like a really continuation of what we were talking about earlier. Transcontinental Railroad does the same thing. Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad completed, I've already said this in 1869, when the Union Pacific, um, which starts in Sacramento and then goes all the way to Promontory Point, Utah. Uh, and then you have the uh, Union Pacific. I said Central Pacific, California, right? Central Pacific starts in California, Sacramento goes all the way to Utah, and then at that division point where the two lines join, then you have the Union Pacific, which then goes all the way to, to Omaha. So it's those two lines that then built towards each other uh, during the late 1860s and then culminated in the Transcontinental Railroad. So this made it possible um, for you know, Americans to go uh, by rail to the West Coast and you know, from the East Coast and vice versa. Um, the interesting thing, though, about this is that uh, the Transcontinental Railroad was financed primarily by the government. Uh, the uh, Pacific Railway uh, Survey Act and, uh, you know, the, and various other acts that basically created 
the Transcontinental Railroad, um, created a funding mechanism for it uh, in which they would get, I want to say like 32000 something like that, $32,000 um, worth of interest-free loans for every level mile and then double that for every mountainous mile. And they were uh, interest-free loans, so and without any sort of strings attached. It's like borrowing from Tom Nook uh, in Animal Crossing, right? There's no end date attached to this, no strings or anything like that. Um, so basically, these companies are incentivized to actually build railroads because they're basically being given money by the government to do it. The other thing they're given uh, is a bunch of land. And so five miles in either direction from these railroads um, and like these checkerboard plots where you have government land, railroad land, government land, railroad land, et cetera, and so forth. Um, the, the railroad companies are given over, what's the number, I want to say like 250 million acres or something like that of land. Um, I have all these in my notes, which I don't have in front of me. Uh, they're given an enormous sum of land um, along these railroads. So uh, this incentivizes the construction of railroads. So if we're gonna be getting all this land and basically being given money by the government to do it, um, you're gonna build a railroad, right? So you start to see railroads crisscross the West. Um, the problem with these railroads is that once they're created and once you've soaked enough money from the government uh, to build these, right? That's what, where Credit Mobilier comes from. Uh, Credit Mobilier was the scandal with the Union Pacific where Thomas Durand, the guy in charge of building the Union Pacific, uh, basically hired his own construction firms, uh, his own contractor firms to actually build it. And he was overcharging his own contractor firms. So he was basically asking the government for all this extra money for cost overruns that were generated by his own construction companies. Credit Mobilier comes into play because people in Congress and people in the Grant Administration noticed this and they say, what, what the hell? What are you doing? Um, and so what does he start doing? He starts giving shares of Credit Mobilier stock uh, to actual congressmen uh, and even to the vice president. So basically, all these congressmen and all these you know, administration officials are receiving Credit Mobilier stock in order to keep quiet about this huge scandal. It eventually breaks and it takes down several Congress people and things like that and generates a lot of um, animosity about the government. That's one of the reasons why uh, in 1876, so many people in the North were willing to vote for Sam Tilden because the Republicans were responsible uh, for all these scandals, including uh, Credit Mobilier. So in any case, um, you have all these railroads, they, they're, they're sort of fraudulently created. Um, they embezzle all this government money. But the end result of that is you have all these railroads and they're operated by all these railroad companies that at least ostensibly are now stuck with the bill of paying back these high interest loans. Sorry, these, these no interest loans, but they still have to pay them back. And more importantly, they have to pay their own salaries and they have to keep the trains running. So all of this is to say that you have a bunch of rail lines in the East and you have a bunch of rail lines in the West. The rail lines in the West overcharge the people who use them in order to subsidize the railroads back East. The same railroad financing model creates uh, duplicate railroads all throughout the East. So you have two, three different roads going between Philadelphia and New York, 
right? Two or three different roads between New York and Boston. So you have a lot of rail competition because these railroads are owned by those companies. So they have to be cutthroat. It's like the airlines today. So, you know, if you want to, well, you know, assuming there's no COVID restrictions, if you want to fly from SFO to New York, there's a whole bunch of airlines that do that. And they very energetically cut their prices and cut their prices in order to sort of stay competitive because you have to fill those airplanes, right? If you're Southwest or United or, or is United still around? If you're American Airlines, Gallup 2020, um, you know, you have to have that route and you have to make it pay for you, right? So you're going to cut those, uh, those fares as low as possible to get people onto your aircraft. Now, if you're flying to Fiji or someplace like that, you know, where there's only one, you know, route or there's only one um, airline that goes there, you can charge whatever you want, right? Because you've basically choked out the, the rest of the competition and you can basically charge whatever you want. So that's why when, I mean, you want to fly to someplace in the South Pacific, even though, you know, it might not be much farther than flying to London, you know, geographically speaking, you're going to be paying a lot more money because there's fewer routes. Um, that's what the railroads do. So back east, you know, over here, I, I keep forgetting this, it's reversed. Um, over here in the east, right, they're uh, reducing fares, trying to fill those trains because trains are going to cost the same whether or not they're full. You need the engineer, you need the coal. Um, you know, it's going to cost the same to run an empty train as it does a full train. So you bring fares low in order to get people on those trains and then hopefully pay for their operation. But out west, it's different. Out west, you can charge whatever you want. And if you're a farmer out west, you only have one rail line usually to choose from. So that's a problem, right? And that's one of the things that's going to lead to the populist movement. Um, well, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that, we'll make that connection again uh, at, at, the, at sort of the end of the lecture. Um, meanwhile, another problem that faces farmers, uh, in addition to uh, really high, like exorbitantly high railroad rates, is deflation. And deflation is one of those problems that um, I don't think historians give it enough credit because it's, it's a mathy kind of problem. Um, but deflation is when uh, prices uh, go down, right? Uh, inflation is when prices go up. Deflation is when prices go down. Now, the reason why deflation is a problem and why it's, it's really significant is because when prices go down, uh, that means you're also getting less money. It also means that you're not able to borrow money nearly as easily as you were before because the whole concept of, of borrowing and lending money comes down to interest. If you're lending money to somebody, you're going to charge interest. And then the expectation is that they'll be paying you more in interest than what the inflation rate's going to be, right? So that's why credit card companies rely on APR, right? APR is their effort to sort of stay ahead of what inflation is supposed to be. But deflation, if you have a deflationary currency, you might as well just hang on to your money, right? You might as well just bury it in the backyard because you know, what's the point? The money is, is going to gain value anyway. So there's no incentive to borrow or to lend money. If there's no incentive to lend, there's no, there's no way to borrow. If there's no way to borrow, you can't buy anything on credit. You can't start new businesses. You can't buy a home. You can't buy a horse. You can't do all the things that you need to do uh, with credit. So this actually really gums up the economy. 
the reason why we have all this deflation is because, and this is all, this, this will all make sense, the gold standard. During the Civil War, for a brief period of time, the United States government has greenbacks, which is paper currency. Uh, but after the Civil War, the United States goes back to the gold standard. The problem with the gold standard, and I know there's a lot of Ayn Rand objectivists who disagree with this, but they're wrong. The problem with the gold standard is that it's a static supply of money. Um, the money supply only grows when you find more gold. That's one of the reasons why the gold rush was such a big deal. It wasn't just a driver of people to California. It also actually literally grew the American money supply. It put more money um, into circulation in America because all the money has to be backed by, by gold currency. So all these little gold rushes all throughout the West actually added that money supply. But then the gold rushes start to ebb and they start to, to dry up a little bit. Um, the last big gold rush in America, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes is 1873. And it's not even that big of a one. It's, it's the one in the Black Hills that resulted in the United States violating its treaty with the Lakota uh, in order to seize the Black Hills, which in turn led to the Plains Indian Wars, which in turn led to the Battle of Little Bighorn, which we've already talked about. Um, so what this basically means is that with all these immigrants coming to America, with all this Western settlement, with this growing economy, you have a money supply that isn't growing. So American economic activity grows bigger and bigger and bigger than the money supply, which means there's not enough money to go around, which means prices fall. This isn't just a big problem for, um, this is a really big problem, especially for farmers, because farmers are now going to get a lot less money uh, for their, their work. And also one of the things too, is that most farmers carry a lot of debt. Farmers are a very capital intensive process. You need to buy plows, you need to buy mules, horses, seed, um, machines, things like that, right? And then you're gonna have off years where prices go down. So now you have all these farmers that owe all this money, they're paying all this money to, to railroad companies and things like that. So to be a farmer in late 19th century America is to live a very precarious existence. So we'll get back to that, the populist movement. Let's, let's start talking about things back east and things in the cities, because things weren't too much better there either. After the Civil War, you start to get this um, growing class of plutocrats, which might sound familiar to people today, called the robber barons. The robber barons are able to consolidate control over entire industries. Um, Andrew Carnegie had control over steel. Uh, John D. Rockefeller had control over oil, um, et cetera and so forth, right? Um, there's a, a, a Jay Gould famously uh, said at one point that he could hire half of the working class to kill the other half. Uh, he was so unpopular that he actually bought a newspaper uh, to say nice things about him. Um, so the plutocrats were decidedly unpopular, but they were also tremendously powerful uh, since they could charge whatever they wanted. So Surely some of you remember from like high school learning about vertical integration and horizontal integration. Uh, horizontal in, in, integration is when you buy all of your competitors out uh, by lowering your prices and then basically you put them out of business and then you buy the firms. And vertical integration is when you buy every point in the production process. So that's what John D. Rockefeller did with oil. You know, he owned the, uh, 
the wells, he owned the land on which the oil wells uh, stood, owned the pipelines, owned the refineries, uh, in some cases actually owned the retailers that sold the, sold the oil. Uh, so by these different mechanisms, these robber barons take advantage of deflation in order to consolidate their, their empires. Because again, deflation means you can't borrow money. If you can't borrow money, you can't start another oil company. So this really like elevates the, the robber barons in such a way that they're sort of all powerful. No one can really compete with them and no one can really, you know, there, there's no space there for competition. And even though this is a capitalist economy, you know, for all intents and purposes, there's no room there for capitalist competition. So the robber barons are a real problem. Since the robber barons can charge whatever they want, they can also pay whatever they want to their employees. Um, strikes are almost unheard of. There's very little um, you know, room for labor agitation because one of the things is if, if you strike, if you complain, uh, you'll be put on a blacklist, you'll never be hired again. Um, so these are all problems that faced workers. So one of the things that, that American workers realized that they have to do in the 1870s um, is that they have to start coming together. One of the ways in which they come together is through the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor is the first major American national labor organization. Uh, and the Knights of Labor are also very inclusive. Uh, the Knights of Labor will let anybody in. Uh, by 1873, I believe, they open it up to women. Uh, they open it up to African Americans. Uh, they open it up to, uh, to domestic laborers, to ditch diggers, to anybody can join the Knights of Labor. Uh, the Knights of Labor believe in a cooperative commonwealth, which is not necessarily capitalistic, you know, but something where you know, all the workers share um, in, the, in the, the fruits of their production, um, which is kind of an aspirational goal. But by 1876, they're big enough that they had over 600,000 members and were still growing. So the Knights of Labor was a very ground up, um, very activistic society. And it grew in a very short period of time. Uh, they started out as a secret society and they would have to advertise their meetings through like secret ciphers. But by 1873, 1874, uh, they announced themselves basically to the world with their list of demands saying like, we're big enough now, we have critical mass, we demand these things. So this catches the robber baron's attention. It also catches the government's attention because the government um, among other things, you know, is subsidized and, and put into office by some of these same robber barons. Now, one of the things we started talking about at the beginning of this dual lecture is the police. Now, the urban police um, are very much a, you know, they start on the local level, right? So you don't have like the FBI creating local police. It's more like the local police then lead to the state police, which then leads to, you know, federal organization of policing. So initially, like in the 1860s and the 1870s, you do have municipal police departments but they're not huge, they're underfunded, they're not professionalized. Um, and they're inherently unable and incapable of doing this, the sorts of um, you know, protest busting 
uh, that police are now able to do. Now the police have things like tanks, you know, um, and tear gas and chemical weapons. Um, police back in the 1870s couldn't do that, okay? You're talking about a guy with a nightstick, okay? And he's paid way too little for that BS. So what do the robber barons do? They hire their own police, the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons are a private police force uh, that's cr uh, created by Alan Pinkerton uh, during the Civil War as sort of a secret service for Lincoln uh, and as an intelligence gathering uh, operation for the Union Army. And then after the Civil War, um, and there's no more wartime contracts, uh, they then start selling their services to private firms. And they essentially become this uh, privatized police force, right? And, and they're inherently professionalized because, you know, you're only going to hire the best to protect your property. So that's kind of the situation that we're facing in 1876 during the Haymarket bombing. Um, I should have reversed those two uh, keywords. Uh, the Haymarket bombing happens in 1876 when, you know, right around the centennial, uh, right ab actually about a month and a half before Little Bighorn, uh, there's these huge May Day protests in 1876 uh, for a five-day work week, right, for a 40-hour work week. Um, and so there's protests all over the country. Um, a little bit, this might sound familiar, you know, cities all across the country have these protests going on. And so one of the things that the robber barons try to do to delegitimize these protests is to accuse them of being violent. Now, there were some violent elements, just like today, there are some violent elements that turn these protests into their own opportunities for mayhem, right? Um, most of the people today protesting are protesting peacefully. They protest, they go home, they go about their lives, right? But you have a core of, of hardened activists, anarchists, uh, saboteurs, agent provocateurs, and they're all kind of working together to smash windows and steal TVs from Best Buy. Um, that's sort of like the majority of these, these like violent outbursts at night. Not all of them, but the, the majority of them. So that's essentially what happens in Chicago uh, on May 4th, uh, 1876. Uh, these protests get so big that Chicago uh, basically starts putting restrictions on the uh, size of protests, basically telling people to no longer peacefully assemble and, and protest. Uh, so the Knights of Labor say, we're gonna do that anyway. You know, we're going to march and we're going to protest. And we're going to demand change. Uh, so the, the police find out about one of these protests in Haymarket Square. And so they show up. And remember, these are not really professional guys, okay? These aren't, you know, like this isn't like today, you know, where police have the, the they're decked out in the armor and they have the tanks and all that other stuff, right? These are guys with billy clubs standing around with paunchy guts. They look like me you know, weird, weird beards, basically. Um, and they're just kind of standing around, you know. Um, and so one of these agent provocateurs, an anarchist, throws a bomb into that phalanx of police officers. It detonates, kills one immediately, eventually kills and maims several more. Um, this becomes a huge public debacle. Um, people, like basically the, the robber barons and the press and the government are able to pin blame uh, on the Knights of Labor and specifically on Chicago labor activists. Uh, they have several show trials. They eventually hang, I think, four of them. Um, and they make this huge public hue and cry 
about the labor activists that actually did it. No one actually ever found out uh, who threw this bomb, as far as I know, uh, but it wasn't one of these labor activists. In fact, we have documentation showing that they were on, in other places. But the Haymarket bombing was used as a pretext to then shut down the Knights of Labor. Um, meanwhile, the rank and file start to see the Knights of Labor as being too radical for them. So people start to leave the organization. Um, by 1880, it is a shell of its former self. It only has like 30,000 members now. So the Knights of Labor, this huge, big, tent, inclusive uh, labor movement, is essentially destroyed um, by the end of 1876 um, by what's happening here with, with Haymarket and everything else. Um, so that, that's the Haymarket bombing, um, but there's still a vacuum there, right? And that's filled by the American Federation of Labor, uh, which was founded by Samuel Gompers. Um, and the American Federation of Labor is very different from the Knights of Labor. The American Federation of Labor um, is a much more limited uh, sort of, of unionization. It's prudential unionism, um, which is basically to say that they're going to look after themselves. So whereas the Knights of Labor believed in wildcat strikes and solidarity and things like that, the American Federation looked after their own. And one of the things that the American Federation Labor did was they controlled who can come into and who could join the union. Uh, they wanted to limit it to specific crafts and specific um, you know, types of professions. Like for instance, Samuel Gompers was, was a cigar maker. So they focused on engineers, on boiler makers, on things like that, people who um, apprenticed for a long period of time to get into their trade. Um, and so the American Federation of Labor is a lot more restricted. Even though the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, didn't explicitly have prohibitions against women or African-Americans joining, since the guilds that would admit new workers didn't admit women or African-Americans, this essentially made this a white male um, and very exclusive movement. Um, the AFL, you know, continues today, the AFL-CIO. Um, so the AFL doesn't cease to exist after the Homestead strike, but it does show the, the limits of prudential unionism. Um, Homestead happens in 1892. I really need to have my notes in front of me when I do this. Um, when uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, hires a strike breaker, uh, to, to run his plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Uh, meanwhile, the, the steel workers there uh, are trying to get a, a new union contract. Uh, so anyway, they, they come to loggerheads, um, Pinkertons come in, they shut down the plant and they lock out the workers. Um, but then the people of Homestead basically seize control of the town and they're gonna march on the factory and reopen it. And so then the, uh, basically Carnegie sends the Pinkertons across this river on barges to attack Homestead um, and regain control of the town because Carnegie basically owned the town. Um, so anyway, this day-long battle starts between the people of Homestead and the Pinkertons. They're just firing on these agents, these Pinkerton agents, and shooting each other. And so by the end of the day, the people of Homestead win. The Pinkertons retreat, they go back across the river and they, they go away. So their celebration, it's like taking down the Death Star. They're super excited about this, hooray! They call the governor of uh, Pennsylvania and they ask them to send the National Guard, send the National Guard, let's reopen this factory. 
But what happens? The governor of Pennsylvania sends the National Guard, but instead he sends them into Pennsylvania, in the homestead to disarm the people there. And the Pinkertons come in and they then reopen the factory using scab non-union labor. So what's the lesson there for the American Federation of Labor? It's that, you know, you need to look out for each other. You know, you can't just have professional uh, steel, steel workers looking after themselves. You need some cooperation. You need some um, mutuality, mutualism, right? You need people to come together. And so you kind of have these two extremes during the labor movement in the late 19th century. The Knights of Labor, um, on the one hand, the AFL on the other. And so the early 20th century will be this process of those two kind of like figuring out the right um, common ground uh, to, to move forward. But in any case, um, these movements have an impact, right? Uh, one of the things that they do is they lead to progressive era reforms against child labor, against, um, you know, six, seven day work weeks and things like that. So a lot of the concerns that these um, strikers and that these unionists had will eventually be folded into public policy. So even though they, they sort of failed in the near term, uh, they proved to the robber barons that the workers themselves can organize um, and that their concerns had to be taken seriously. Um, there's a lot more I can say about this and that's kind of an overly triumphalist uh, look at that, but that's sort of like the, the main thing that happens. Uh, the last thing we'll talk about, going back to those farmers, uh, and some of these workers too, is the populist movement. And so the populist movement um, is sort of like a, a uh, antecedent to the progressive era. Um, so the populists are, they want to nationalize the railroads. Uh, they want to create a sub-treasury system for agriculture, meaning that when prices go down, uh, the government will buy crop prices at the prices that they expected those crops to be sold at. Uh, so farmers wouldn't lose any money. They would then take those prices, or so those crops that they buy, store them away someplace, right? Um, and then, you know, sort of hold on to them. So they basically want it to equalize um, and, and standardize, like, agricultural prices. Uh, standardized railroads do that. Um, they're, they're, they believe in, uh, and the other big thing that they wanted to do too is get rid of the gold standard. So back to deflation. Uh, they want free silver currency. So that would basically add silver to the currency. Um, and some actually want a greenback. So they wanted to go back to sort of that paper fiat currency. Um, there's a few problems with the populist movement. The populist movement has a lot of success uh, at a local and state level. They take over several state governments like uh, Nebraska. Um, they have a lot of people in Congress, um, but by 1896, they, they sort of tie their horse to uh, um, William James Bryant, who sort of combines the populist and democratic tickets, uh, and then just gets blown away by William McKinley in the election. And that effectively ends the populist movement. But really, the, the problem of the populist movement is sort of the same problem that people have with William Jennings Bryant, is that they associate the populist movement with being just a bunch of dumb farmers. So uh, who cares about what these yokels have to say in Texas and Nebraska and Georgia and things like that? Um, people didn't really take it seriously because the populist movement um, was a very, like, it's what we think of today as populism, you know, the whole term populism of the people. 
uh, Vox Populi, you know, the, the regular everyday people standing up. Um, Trump is very much a populist figure, you know, even more than he's like a Republican figure um, or a conservative figure. You know, he's a figure that purportedly stands um, for the masses, for the people, um, you know, and sort of picks up that banner. Um, and that's essentially what the populist movement builds itself as. Um, you know, but there's a lot of, of reaction to that, um, especially within the professional classes and the robber barons hate the populace. And so they're kind of stymied at every level. And the populist movement never really gets um, a whole lot of federal traction. Um, but one of the interesting things about it though, is that even though the populist movement loses the political war, they win the war of ideas. All of the things that they wanted for the most part, they, you know, the, the railroads are never nationalized, but um, prices are standardized. And you don't have like Amtrak and you have federal um, legislation that uh, dictates how much, you know, can be charged for freight and things like that. Um, instead of a sub-treasury system, we have the um, Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, uh, which does standardize crop prices. Um, instead of the free coinage of silver, uh, you have the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which begins the process of creating a fiat paper-based currency. Uh, so most of the ideas, oh, and other things like subsidizing dry farming experiments so that people with dusty acres of land in Nebraska and Colorado can find some way um, to make money off of their plots. Um, you now have legislation by the, the mid-1930s that, that sort of does that. So most of these populist ideas within a generation or so actually become political reality. Um, as for the movement itself, it essentially fails, but a lot of the ideas and a lot of that enthusiasm and energy momentum eventually turns its way to the progressive movement, which will be what we talk about next week. Whew. Any questions? How are you guys doing? You're speechless. That's good. That's good. Adam, did you have something to say or? It's good stuff. No, I feel good. good stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna go get some water and hydrate after that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I will download this this immense combined lecture and put it online. Um, and that's it for the week for lecturing. Um, we're one sixth of the way through the class for those of you in the six week class. Um, and for those of you in the seven-week class, well, week one's basically off. So you're also now a sixth of the way through the class since you're probably watching this next week. Uh, so uh, good stuff. Any other questions before I, I break? Break it off. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one thing tomorrow I should mention is that I'm going to be traveling uh, for a lot of the day tomorrow. Uh, the lecture, oh, okay, good question. Well, this is sort of a moot point for those of you who are watching this later since you found them. Um, but for those of you who are watching now, uh, all the, the lectures are on the website. Uh, so if you go to the module, you can actually look under the module. There's a lecture section, and that's where I put them. So I put links to the, to the video files there. Okay. Hey, Professor. Yeah. I have a question about the final exam. Sure. So I wanted to use the prompt too about the the feminist and it had the three waves. 
Uh huh. Is it is it okay if I use that that first paragraph you have for like my thesis, like exactly how you have it written? Well, I'll try to paraphrase it a little bit, but sure. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Uh huh. Uh, anyone else? Okay, well, that'll about do it, I think. Um, if you have any other questions, send me an email. Um, like I said, uh, I'll be traveling through for much of the day tomorrow. Um, I will be online periodically. I'll be answering emails when I get them. Um, but it might be like a little bit of a lag time. I'm still trying to figure out my actual email situation. I'm able to get, I guess, most if not all of them through Canvas. Um, but my actual email access right now is non-existent. Um, I'm trying to get that rectified. Uh, it was supposed to be rectified by today, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll be in touch. If it continues to be a problem, I'll just give everybody my other email address. So you guys can email me there. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a great, 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 great weekend. And uh, uh, as Tony the Tiger would say, a great weekend. Um, and I will see you guys uh, next Tuesday. So thank you so much for, for stopping by.